like scary movies. Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Welcome to the Jumping Scared Podcast. This is a special episode as I'm joined by my twin brother, Eric. But instead of being across the sea, we are together. Uh, Eric is joining me in Zurich, Switzerland, which is where I normally podcast from, which I'm super excited about. He's in town and we're doing a podcast together. Uh, and this is going to be an episode about The Haunting of Hill House, which we both loved as a series and we're watching the second time through for this podcast. Eric, how are you feeling? I'm excited. This is the first time where you'll be able to accurately see the disappointment in my eyes when you give terrible opinions. (laughs) Oh no, there it is. So uh, yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, This is... This is a show that blew up not only in like the horror sphere, but it got so much popular acclaim from every audience, and uh, you don't see that too often from horror, so it was only right for us to cover it. It's a show we both enjoyed uh, quite a bit, and uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about it. And this is a great, uh, I think a gateway horror show. This is a show that's accessible to a, a really big audience. I don't think you have to be, well, you certainly don't have to be a huge horror fan to really fall into this show. It's got a lot of you know, a lot of it that, that makes it so compelling, that makes it so interesting, is the relationship between this family and how they develop over time. There's you know, great character development, and uh, the mo- it's, it's just shot really well. It's an enjoyable overall feel, and uh, a lot of credit to Mike Flanagan. We've, we've kind of repped his, uh, or, you know, given him props on this podcast before as, as someone that we really like, a director that we start to really respect in horror. And, you know, for us, I would call this a bit of a home run. I think this was a really... Uh, incredible foray into television. Uh, I think Netflix was the perfect format for it. He could kind of control a lot more aspects that you might not be able to do on network TV. And yeah, for me, just uh, did a lot right. Yeah, I agree completely. And uh, so before we jump in on any uh, anything, let's just really big disclaimer. Uh, so this is a going to be a part one episode. Uh, we're just really going to be talking about the Central, central ideas of the, the show and covering episodes one through five, but we will be providing a lot of spoilers. Yes, <laughs> so. yeah, we're going we're gonna to be focusing on episodes one through five, but we're going to probably mention some stuff that's going to be either foreshadowing or stuff that applies later in the series. So if you haven't seen the whole series, we recommend it for sure. Just go ahead and watch the whole series. But this first episode is really going to be focused on the first five episodes. Yes. With lots of spoilers. Yes. And so uh, for anybody who's unfamiliar with the concept, uh, the basic idea of the uh, Haunting of Hill House is that it flashes between past and present of a fractured family confronting haunted memories of their old home and the terrifying events that drove them from it. Uh, season one was 10 episodes, and it was released in October of 2018. Yes, and it was based on a book of the same name. Uh, the I, I don't I honestly, I haven't read the book, so I can't say how much difference there is. I know there is some difference because I've, I've read some people who've read, you know, read the book and also done the TV show, and they kind of talk about a little bit of the differences you see there. Um, so we're, we're really going to focus on the show because neither of us have read the book, and, uh, you know, we love the show, so we're going to focus on that. So, Eric, I think what's, with all this said, with all this prefacing, let's just go ahead and jump into episode one, which is Stephen Sees a Ghost. Yes. And uh, so just to give a quick little frame of reference, uh, so the family is a family of seven. It is a father named Hugh, mother named Olivia, uh, oldest son named Stephen, and then going down the order for age, there's a daughter named Shirley, a daughter named Theo, and then two twins, a boy and a girl named Luke and Nellie. And so that first episode called Stephen Sees a Ghost, uh, obviously based around Stephen, who is the oldest son. And 
we are kind of thrown right into the gauntlet. Oh with yes, episode one. They don't they don't really waste any time getting to the meat of the story. And I think before we talk about anything, I think we have to talk about the design of Hill House itself. Mm-hmm. The first time you see it, it is just so massive. There's so many rooms, so many corridors. The decorations leave so much room for, especially like children, to see spooky things. Yeah, creepy imagination can really take over. There's a lot of room for that, I agree. Yeah, I think everybody in their own apartment can like have that moment where they thought they saw somebody, even though it was just like a coat. This house makes that times a million. Yep, <laughs> everywhere, everywhere you look, it's possible to see something. Uh, so kudos to the design. The house is massive. It looks great. Not only from the inside, the outside looks great as well. Mm-hmm. So they absolutely nailed what they were going for with that uh, aesthetic for sure. Yeah, and I'd like to add to that the, the visual we get of the adult Nellie as she's slow dancing through the house in the adult timeline. The house is a bit decrepit at this time. Is Honestly, that's terrifying. Like, it, 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 There's definitely instances where I feel uncomfortable in these open spaces, especially at night. So like this really big house with a lot of room, you don't really know what's there. Um, her like just rhythmically moving through the building and you don't know what's going on. Cause it's the first episode. You kind of really have no idea what's going on. And this is one of the first visuals you get is, is this adult Nelly dancing and, uh, Really, it, it, it makes you uncomfortable, it makes you feel tense, it makes you feel nervous for what's to come, and I think that's a really good uh, visual to start you off. It does, and then what it does really well by playing off that is finding really seamless transitions from those adult phases to those child phases. Yep. Like, oftentimes it's something as simple as like opening the refrigerator and then completely shifting timelines, and they, they find some, we'll talk about this as we go down, because I wrote down a couple that I thought were really well really well done so the the seamless because this show obviously is one that depends on navigating the timeline of adult and children and it's fluctuating constantly you might get a minute here five minutes here five you know it it, it goes back and forth in time sometimes extremely quickly and like i agree completely the the transitions i love i think they're very very smooth you have the young version of the character doing something identical to the adult character and that's how you transition i've seen a little bit of criticism saying like oh well they're just doing this action because then they can replicate it but if I, I want you to, if you have not seen the It miniseries and you watch the difference between Haunting of Hill House, the transitions from one timeline to another, and then you watch the It <laughs> miniseries from 1990, that is laughably different. You get like just, I, I, I think it's, um, I want to say it's Richie, but he's just like open mouth, like in horror, like staring off into the distance at the same time. And it's like, it, this, in my opinion, I think this is just really well done. The transitions are very smooth and you just flow back and forth between the stories really well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so the, the kind of the central crux, at least that we uh, are presented with in the first episode, uh, is that there, be it some imaginative or actual force that is driving a wedge between this family. Mm-hmm. And you see that so often in horror and it's such a good concept because it's so easy to put yourself in the shoes, especially uh, when like the the force targets the most susceptible, the younger people who um, maybe their parents aren't so likely to believe them if they say they see a ghost or if they say something wild is happening. So you just put that wedge in there and you let the gap slowly widen. Mm-hmm. And we see we see that a lot. We see uh, the, the parents really like they don't they don't hear the the certain noises the kids are hearing. They don't see anything, especially 
the the dad uh you see kind of later on the, there's some more issues with Liv the mom but uh with the dad he's really just uh until kind of the very end of uh where, where the young the the older timeline ends you, you really or sorry the the uh back in time timeline ends I should say I, I should say child timeline maybe an adult timeline okay. when the child timeline ends is when the father is finally really believing the kids and really understanding there's something wrong and so the the kids kind of feel isolated you know they have each other but it's hard when you're kids you, you're like oh the adults don't believe me I can't really mm-hmm. do anything to prove it and it's I think it's interesting that you can kind of trace that feeling based on the adult timelines uh, how those adults are coping yep. with their situation so the oldest copes with it by writing scary stories and then you go to owning a funeral home then you go to drugs and sex and then you go to or sorry then you go to alcohol and sex and severe yeah. paranoia and then straight out drugs yeah. so you go down the timeline getting worse and worse as the younger you get yeah and another thing i i really like uh, this is going to be present throughout the show and again this is something that some people maybe don't love but it, i think it just adds to the atmosphere that, especially if this is your second time viewing the show you see this a lot in the first episode there's a lot of background and i'll say just ghosts there's a lot of background dark figures like you can tell it's you know some sort of human um, sometimes it's really clear. Sometimes it's very obscure. If you if you if you've been on the internet looking about this show, you've seen posts about this. You've seen people break down with slideshows of every time that you see an image. But uh, you know, I think if you want an example of this, you should rewatch in episode one the sequence with uh, young Stephen and his dad right before his dad is carrying him out of the room, out of the house. There's a like a man essentially in the background of that shot for so long. I I, remember, I didn't write down how long, but it was like minutes. Like and I was just like. I don't remember seeing it on the first time because you're not really, you know, as your first time viewing, you're just really focused on the interactions that people have. You're not like staring into the background looking, but, you know, I was a bit more cognizant when I was watching this the second time. And yeah, I was like, what, like, what, I like, it's just like almost like a, it makes you question, like, why is this thing here? Why is it watching them? And I like it. I think it's really fun and uh, really cool. Yeah. And so, especially when mentioning that on the second watch, this is the kind of show where you, kind of want to question how reliable your narrators are um especially since they're young and it's a, it's a haunted house it's just a big house but once you start seeing that stuff in the background you're it's very easy to believe everything that you're being told mm-hmm. and and even more uh it was a really nice concept because a lot of the times on second watch uh you can still enjoy something but you're not necessarily picking up anything new you may be a little bit of nuance in the dialogue but missing like key visuals is a very rare thing, at least for me, in my opinion, for horror. And uh, that's something that this show does really well. Yep. Uh, another thing I'd like to talk about a bit is uh, some foreshadowing that this show really, you know, it, when you're watching it back, it, it's kind of slapping you in the face. But when you're watching it the first time, you kind of have no idea. Um, and that's going to be, I'm going to talk about the Red Room foreshadowing. Um, so this is something like again we, we we're saying we're doing spoilers here. So if you haven't watched the show and you're still listening, stop because <laughs> wait, this is gonna spoil a lot. And it makes it less interesting. So because we're talking about the red room a little bit here, um, a quote I loved in this was uh, the mom Olivia was asking, "Oh, have you seen Luke to the young Steve?" And he said, "Did you try the treehouse?" And she immediately goes, "Very funny, Mister." And you kind of like, okay, like whatever. And um, and we don't really know like what as an audience because then right after you see Steve join Luke in the treehouse and they're they're, they're you know having fun playing and stuff. But 
you know, come to come to find out that there never was a treehouse in this house. That uh, is something that the Red Room manifested as itself for Luke to make him feel more comfortable. And I think that was a great foreshadowing. Uh, the treehouse actually has a red door even, which I thought was great. I don't know if you even noticed that for sure. But mm-hmm. yeah, I loved that. And uh, yeah, there, there's Red Room foreshadowing. And I'm, I'm going to mention a couple more times in the other episodes, but it's, it's rife. And I think it's it really adds on a second viewing. Oh yeah, I agree completely. I mean... We got the the really good red room from Insidious, and this show just takes that concept and says, okay, people thought this was spooky. <laughs> Let me leave this locked and throw a whole bunch of small clues and hints at it, yeah. and then you'll really see what a red room can do. Yeah, and so building throughout this episode, uh, I think it builds to a really good finality. You get... Um, Towards the end, there's concern. The family's starting to get concerned for Nellie. We don't know the exact details, but we've seen her dancing through the house, so we know something kind of is amiss with her. And um, the very end of the episode, Steve has just come back to his apartment. He gets a call from his dad telling him there's a problem with Nell, and she shows up into his apartment, and her, you know, she, her, she looks normal at first, but then her skin starts to like almost fall apart, and she clearly is not a real person, and she screams, and Steven is not, like, you know, falls over, and to me that was like knocking the rationality out of Steve, and adult Steve was so rational and so focused on like you know separating himself from his work because he didn't believe anything he was actually saying in his books and like like we were saying earlier he's essentially a writer about paranormal activity and he he really needs to keep rationality needs to keep logic he needs to understand the supernatural because he had this experience when he was a kid and he doesn't he essentially uh diminishes or uh makes little of all the experiences of his siblings because he's like oh they're they're mentally ill my mom was mentally ill and uh this i think really he still kind of denies it later on, but this really forces him to feel more like his siblings did. And I thought that was a great end to the first episode to set the tone. Yeah, I agree completely. Uh, one thing I think we should bring up uh, with the actress who's playing Nellie, uh, one thing she has to do pretty consistently and pretty well is, so we're presented in the first episode with child Nellie suffering from what seems to be a sleep sleep paralysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the range of emotions that she has to portray while having such limited motion and movement in her face and body. And so not only does she do that during these like sleep paralysis attacks, but if you can remember during that scene uh, where Stephen sees her in his apartment, the small like lip quivering yep. that starts to unravel the like what he thought he was seeing. There's just such a really good technique used by her to just automatically send shivers down your spine. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Uh, you got any more notes for episode uh, episode one, Eric? Or are you ready to move on to episode two? Yeah. I, there's a lot more we could say, but you know we're we're just really trying to focus on the main themes and some stuff we really like from the episode. So this is going to be tr- you know we're not going to you know pick apart the show to death because you know, we enjoyed it and we loved you know well, I'd say we loved it. I yes. I, I think that's fair, and uh, we're just going to try to you know hit our favorite aspects of each episode. Yes. Uh, no, I I think I think several things that we didn't hit on are going to come up later. Okay, so perfect. let's move on to episode two, and that's going to be called Open Casket. And so from here on out. Or, well, actually, I guess with episode one, too, the first five episodes are kind of, each one is a little bit focused on one of the younger children as their younger days. So the first one was a little more focused on Steve. It was, it was also building kind of the entire narrative, but a little focused on Steve. With two, we're definitely focused on young Shirley, and uh, she is the second oldest, I believe. She's uh, yes. followed by Theo and then the twins. Yes. And uh, something I loved with this episode, we heard this in episode one, but um, so Shirley kind of in her sleep, she mutters, Nellie's in the red room. 
and we don't know why we don't really know what that means but uh and she does this like in the middle of the night and i thought that's just a perfect precursor to the terror that will eventually take place in the red room and, and kind of setting that up so i think the use in episode one and then the follow-up at the start of episode two that was just perfect to me yeah i agree completely um the, so people i think are going to be drawn to different characters in the show for different reasons um and one thing i really like about this show is that I feel like you can take a look at the, the three f- female children, Theo, Shirley, and Nell, and you can kind of draw a pretty straight line from the mother Olivia to them, and you can kind of pick up uh, what portions of Olivia make up yep, these kids. Absolutely. And especially, I think they did a great job that adult Shirley and adult Theo look to me like exactly like Olivia, but for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but like personality-wise, you get like completely separations of all three of them and it's it's almost like those three kids make up the whole of olivia and we really see that in how shirley has developed as a adult in episode two and so uh can i add something really quick i don't want to interrupt too much but i uh, adding to that you said you can see a bit of olivia in all the three girls i think you can also see a bit of olivia's special talent which is a bit of uh um, I don't want to say telekinesis necessarily, but some sort of kind of supernatural power that you can see a little bit in each of the three daughters. Olivia, or um, most notably you see with Theo, and she has the ability to kind of touch things and then uh, observe, you know, really kind of deep truths about it. You see with uh, with Shirley, she has a little bit of prophetic dreams, so she definitely has a bit of a advanced mental state. And then with Nell, um, you know, it's just a twin thing. She, she says over and over and she can really tell when things are wrong with her siblings without needing to have any sort of you know input or stimuli to tell her that there's something's wrong. Yeah. So I want because Olivia has, we don't know exactly what her the scope of her kind of power is, but I just wanted to kind of point that out. Yes. Yeah. No. That's well said. To me, yeah. To me, you, you kind of summed it up perfectly. Nellie is like the pure innocence and uh, emotion side of yes. Olivia, and she bears the brunt of that with trying to manage her family after the the tragedy that strikes them yeah she's definitely so she's the youngest or you know tied for youngest i don't know where luke or or who's younger but she she definitely is the one who's most invested in the well-being of all her siblings as she grows older too so taking a brunt of that i like how you said that uh i like also here we see shirley who is extremely impacted by her mom uh you get a lot of influence on how she develops as a person um, you know, at one point her mom tells her, oh, like home, like she's kind of telling her why they have the house. And she says, oh, homes are like bodies. And then Shirley becomes a mortician. Um, Olivia and her husband, uh, now I'm blanking on his name, Stu, or is it Stu? <laughs> I'm blanking on the father's name. Let me double check here. Um, oh, Hugh, Hugh, sorry. Uh, Hugh, uh, my bad, Stu, close enough. Um, you know, throughout their so they only bought Hill House to fix it up and sell it, but they have this forever home sketch. Olivia has been sketching to try to you know model the forever home, and then when you see Shirley as an adult, she has this miniature built of her yes. forever home. So you see a lot of uh, impact on on Shirley as she develops from her mother. So I mm-hmm. thought that was kind of neat, and that ties into what we were talking about with the influence of Olivia. Yes, one of my uh, one of my favorite parts, kind of of the whole show, uh, happens in this episode. Uh, so Shirley uh, is out exploring the house pretty shortly after they've moved in and she discovers this kind of uh, rundown shed and she goes in and she finds a box of abandoned kittens mm-hmm. 
and she convinces her mother and father to let them uh, come stay with her in Hill House. And Luke has a very, very good line uh, once she brings him in, talking about how there's five kittens, just like the five of us kids. And no more than three or four days later, every single one of them dies while in Hill House. Yeah. And I just thought that was such a cool, cool way to kind of put a metaphor into what these kids are dealing with just living in that house. And I also wonder if that was a bit of a almost like a, a kind of influencing factor on her when she becomes older because you can see she took a, she really cared to, you know she wanted to try to take care of these kittens and she put it as her responsibility and I wonder if them dying almost made her more wary of trying to take care of her siblings as she grows older because you see as an adult there's a lot of fractured relationships and she she does still care for her siblings but I wonder if like her kind of maternal instincts or her protective instincts were a bit hard, you know, harmed by this tragic event of, you know, especially the brutality of losing the kittens. At, at one point, uh, there was a, you know, a bug crew out of the dead kitten, a cruel, cruel, crawled out of the, one of the dead kittens mouths as she thought like, Oh, maybe it's coming back, which is just insult to injury. My goodness. And then the eyes bulged out of the mm-hmm. sockets and yeah, she was, it was just brutality. There was, was, was really on. You know, hard to watch almost. Yes, for sure. And uh, so episode two also uh, deals with an important fact of the adult children all kind of being forced to deal with Nellie's death. Yes. And so we talked about how the show has really good transitions. One of my favorite ones was when uh, it transitioned from uh, Shirley doing the makeup on the cadaver for Nellie to doing the makeup for her on her wedding day. Yeah, that was phenomenal. Oh my goodness, that one's just because you, you see this, core. you see the same emotion on her face, but then it's you know it's when she's doing for the for the um, in the funeral home it, it just stays flat, but when she's doing the wedding, then she sees her and she smiles like, oh, you look so beautiful, and it's a clear happiness versus a clear just sadness, and that the transition between those two with the kind of bridging the gap with the at least at first like calm emotional state yeah that was that was really really well done yes and speaking of the wedding uh this this scene was hard hard for me to watch uh when uh so as shirley's doing doing nelly's makeup out of the corner of her eye through the window she sees luke pull up in a cab and at this point we've been uh, we've been dictated by the plot that luke has been in and out of rehab and struggling with a drug issue and so he shows up and Shirley greets him outside. She essentially runs outside. She doesn't want Nell to see him. And uh, you know, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's heartbreaking because you you see you see what you eventually see what these kids go through, and the fact that it's just such a fractured relationship. You're just like yelling at the screen, like, please, just be there for each other. And it, unfortunately, yeah. it's if you're if you're wanting a happy. Happy go lucky. This is going to be an easy, seamless relationship kind of show. This is this is definitely not the one for you. Especially when you're constantly seeing you know, overall how friendly and, and loving the children are for each other, and then we're thrust into this adult world where the relationships are just broken. You know, it goes from loving and happy to broken and apart. And you know, may call it maybe it's a twin thing, but the relationship between uh, Luke and Nellie for me it was just so hard hitting. We're gonna get more into that. Uh, in episode four yes. and a little bit in episode five as well but yeah that just was was tough and uh it hits you like almost every episode yes so 
Yeah, and one last thing I think if I could say to wrap up episode two. I've got one more thing too, but go ahead. Okay. Uh, so one thing that kind of, uh, yeah, one thing uh, Olivia made a point of as the kids were getting familiar with the house and the surrounding area was that anytime she flashes the porch light, that means it's time to come home. Flashes it twice, yeah. It flashes it twice. And so Alex had mentioned that uh, Shirley had kind of taken over the role of building a future home and she was using like a diorama. And so to end episode two, it cuts to that diorama and you see the Porsche light flash twice and it's... Uh, That's just a perfect... I, I had that written in my notes too. I'm so glad you touched on that. Um, like I, I interjected like, oh, I have to something to add. So you added the perfect thing. That was a great end. It's, it's almost like... At this point, is it the house beckoning to Shirley? Is it live inside the house beckoning to Shirley? We don't know, but something is beckoning to Shirley. And something is already called to Nellie, and it's just continuing with that. And I thought that was just perfect. I absolutely loved that. Yes. All right, so episode three. Um, this is episode three called Touch, and this is going to be a bit more Theo-centric. And we're really introduced to Theo's ability in this episode, which I really was compelled by. Theo was always a super interesting character to me. Um, she has this ability to touch things, and we don't know essentially. We don't really know the scope of it, but she gets a under deep, like a much deeper understanding from it. Be it touching a wall, or touching an object, or even touching people, which eventually leads her to start wearing gloves because the sensation is too much at times, and she doesn't mm-hmm. want to just subject herself all the time to that. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting, and we're. Uh, introduced to her career as an adult which is as a psychologist focusing on children and man the case we're, we're shown is just who it's a doozy um where, where he, she's working with a young girl who is in a new foster care and she's talking about like this monster she calls her mr smiley and uh theo had this really good quote where she's you know telling the ch- the girl you know we're similar like we're, we're builders we make ourselves safe and nobody nobody can ever get in She's trying to really kind of relate to the girl, and then the girl just pauses and says, well, Mr. Smiley does. And as we learn later, which we'll talk about, uh, terrifying in retrospect. Yes. Uh, this uh, this episode also, we start to really dig deeper into um, why these adults have, are so shaken by their experience in Hill House. Uh, and one thing I like that they, they tried to do was uh, start to give some shared experiences so, like, in the second episode, we had Shirley and Theo. Uh, because Theo basically woke up Shirley and said, why are you banging on my wall? Why are you calling my name? And Shirley had no idea what she was talking about. And then together in the same room, they hear pounding on the wall. They feel like someone's trying to get in. Now, in episode three, uh, we have Theo sending Luke down to the basement in the dumb later, And then eventually Theo going down there and finding the ripped shirt. Yep. And so she she knows what happened in yeah. that basement. Luke knows what happened. Obviously, their parents aren't quite ready to believe. But all these children sh- having these shared experiences and knowing something's going on, and you just want that that belief and that support in each other to carry through. And having to see that, and then seeing where the relationships go from there, it just it's such a struggle as a viewer, and it's just that. Uh, it's, it's really well done because it, it makes you, it just makes you hurt. Yep. <laughs> it really does. And I think I have a really good add to that. So this is a, a quote from um, young Luke and young uh, Nellie who were playing with, essentially it was a, a pipe you could talk from like the kitchen up to upstairs. It would kind of transmit your voice, you know, like at a playground you've seen those. It's like a cone kind of shape and it'll let you talk from you know, far away. 
And this is just like an adorable snip of conversation as these children are talking. And Nellie wants to confirm that the real Luke is there. And she goes, if this is the real Luke, what's your favorite pudding? He goes, uh, rice? And she immediately goes, no, it's chocolate, vanilla, chocolate. And then and then Luke goes, no, it's rice now. And then Nellie, kind of, this is then in the background because Theo's doing something, but she goes, you need to tell me important, you need to tell me important things like this, Luke. <laughs> and it's just like such a cute little snippet of dialogue between these twins, but it shows they have this like super loving relationship and then you see later on they don't. So it, it, that just adds to the... You know, that makes you upset. It makes you so, like, you don't you don't know what's happened all the years in between, but you just know, you know, at point A, there's such a good relationship to point B where it's just so broken, and it just makes it so much worse. Yeah, it really does. And uh, so carrying on of uh, Theo's profession, of, and let's talk a little bit more about this Mr. Smiley yes. case, because I've got another really, really good transition that I like. So as Nell or as uh, Theo is exploring the basement, she gets to this like big closet area that looks like it's locked, and obviously there's something bad in there, potentially the bad thing that could have attacked Luke. Mm-hmm. Uh, as she goes to open that door, it transitions to adult Theo, and she's opening the door to that foster home, and it's it makes you question what what monster is she actually going to find? Yep. And uh, so, yeah, she, that, that's kind of her job is to, well, her job as a psychologist to work with children, but she also kind of goes outside the boundaries to really help these kids because obviously with her touch, she can tell when things are a bit more off than they initially, you know, kind of seem to be. So she, she goes to this foster home. Uh, she's like, hey, I just want to look around, you know, can I look around your basement? I'm just trying to get a feel for, you know, her environment. And so she goes and, and lays on the basement couch and she looks up. And she takes her gloves off and puts it on the couch, and she sees just on the on the, you know, essentially the floorboards of upstairs, but so facing downwards in the basement, there's this kind of almost like a water stain in the shape of a smiley face, like the girl had drawn. And she, when she feels the couch, she just has this visceral like, you know, panic reaction where she's, you can tell she's just like in terror and feeling so uncomfortable, and you you almost assume that she's feeling the way that the little girl was feeling at the time that, at this point, we can say was was being. Uh, being assaulted as, as we find out she goes upstairs and uh, she's like oh she tells the parents like oh yeah sorry I, I just wanted to check and um, she shakes the father's hand on purpose she takes her glove off and shakes the father's hand and she, she says like oh just I wanted to like see you smile I just wanted to see your smile or something and, and as she shakes his hand without the glove she, like her her expression yeah. just falls she and she knows, knows. and she knows. uh and so, I mean, if you can't tell by what we're saying, like, obviously, I mean, if you've seen the show, it's it's very much assumed that the foster father was molesting this yes. maybe seven, eight-year-old girl, and that's just, oh, and then, so you're, then you're thinking that Theo felt how this girl was feeling, mm-hmm. and that's just, that's a tough burden to bear, and yeah. uh, especially as Theo, what I really like about uh, both characters for Theo is that they're so closed off. Like especially the child actress, she, outside of a few scenes, shows no emotion. Yep. She's really good at just being like or worrying about herself, not or pre- almost pretending to not care about things. And then as an adult, obviously, she, she chooses to live a lifestyle in which that is everything about her. I mean, she has casual relationships doesn't want to learn anything about anybody she wants to be or do her thing drink a lot drink a lot to forget and uh, there's one one way that she wraps up that uh, case and it's it was obviously she was saying it 
and it was uh, it could be uh, applied to quite a few things. She said she just needed help, and nobody was listening. Yeah, that applies directly to Nellie and everything she was going through, and it it really applies to pretty much every kid in there who dealt with something, and especially when you're going through something like a haunted house, you. A, you question yourself. Right. And you don't know who you can trust to tell who won't think you're crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially with Nellie, who's who's bearing the brunt of that more than any of the kids. Uh, that line just really stuck with me. She just needed help. Nobody was listening. Because I you, completely agree. Because you saw that with Nellie when she had made that phone call. She called Shirley. She called Stephen in episode one. They just both silenced it. Finally, her dad picks up, and uh, heartbreaking phone call. Yes. It really was. And I thought, uh, similar to kind of what you're saying here the, the, at the end of the episode, to finally gain actual closure on, on Nellie's death, she actually feels her. Like, it's almost like it wasn't real until that happened. And, and I mean, if you, if you can kind of put yourself in the shoes of having this ability to get extreme sensation from touch and then feeling your dead sister, like, how much that would... De- like just decimate you is just uh oh yeah it's hard to imagine yes it really is all right eric anything else you want to add on episode three no i think that's it and uh i think uh, the next two episodes we're going to talk about are the the two of my favorite of the first part we're at least going to talk about yeah four five and six i think are maybe like i think the middle of this show really really shined like i liked i liked all of it but i think three or four five and six really really shined and so we'll jump in with episode four, the twin thing, and that's going to be a Luke-centric episode. And, um, you know, neither of us have had uh, really personal experiences with, with, with you know, hard drug abuse like Luke has shown. But I think the way that it's shown here, it seemed very realistic. It seemed very, um, and especially with given his, his circumstances as a child, it seemed understandable how he fell into it. And oh, it's, it's tough, though. Like I said, this is another instance where, you see this kid who's like a you know super lovable kid. He has this great relationship with his family, and then you see him as an adult. He's alienated from his family. None of his family can trust him, and he's you know he steals, he lies, and he's just addicted to uh, you know hard drugs, and it's just brutal. Yeah, while while we can't necessarily relate to his current situation and going down the route of drugs, we can relate to him being a twin. Yep, uh, we are both twins, and I think uh, at least for me. The relationship between Nellie and Luke uh, was my favorite part of the entire series. And I say favorite uh, with like a heavy heart yes. <laughs> because yes. it was in, uh, that almost impossible to watch. It just, Alex brought up how adorable they were as kids with that, the kind of interactions they had and just seeing the, seeing the relationship go down the path it goes down, just kind of imagining putting yourself in those shoes it's just it's hard it's hard to hard to even fathom it really is and we'll we'll get to this i think it's in episode five Um, which part okay yeah it is (laughs) so we'll get there but uh that yeah the inter- every interaction the fact that nelly's the last one of the family that still believes in luke and just seeing where that takes them yeah i think at this point i'd love to talk about um her driving him to rehab then because 
Um, she's driving him to rehab. This is not his first experience with rehab. Um, the rest of the family members are like, oh, well, he'll, he won't, this won't take, you know, he's not going to just, it's not going to magically work. But she's, she's his ride and he's giving her directions and she, he instructs her to pull over and he tells her pretty much like, Hey, I, I need, I need the phrasing he used. I need to get well one more time. Oh, like that, that might be a, maybe an expression that addicts use. I don't know, but that just like made me so sad like i need to get well one more time before i go in you're not you're not getting well you're not helping yourself you're not doing it for a good reason you're doing it because you're an addict and, and nelly you could see like her face just drop but uh the, the drug dealer like he you know luke owed money or something so she he then actually you know essentially forced her like he guilted her into getting him drugs you know and, and it was disgusting because or not disgusting oh this is sad because and she comes back with the drugs and gives it to him and she goes he, he spat that out it was a balloon of heroin and he, goes, he just goes yeah they do that and then starts shooting up in her car like and i think at that point you can see how much nelly's still just yeah it's a twin like <laughs> you can't like not support your twin like I, I just can't imagine a situation where i wouldn't support you but at that at that point it's just you're supporting it's tough. Yeah, <laughs> it's and, just it's tough. And the, the juxtaposition of that scene right after Luke shoots up, uh, and then Nellie sees uh, the Betnack lady, who is a recurring struggling ghost, that horrific haunts her, force yeah. that haunts her. She sees her in, while she's in the car with Luke, and I think it's at that moment she realizes that nobody on this earth cares for her the way she cares for her family yes so she she she's helping luke go through this process while she is dealing with something that's unimaginable and she realizes okay nobody's there for me and i think i think of all the things that has to be the breaking point i i i would i would agree i think that's very well said and uh it's it's tragic because of of the history of she has with you know loving her family but yeah I, I would agree with that and so let's talk about another really good scene in this episode so uh the kids are kind of encouraged to like explore the house look at the nooks and crannies if they find anything that seems valuable then they'll sell it if not they'll uh trash it and at least get the house a little bit cleaner uh, so during this process, Luke finds this kind of old school bowler top hat mm -hmm. and uh, obviously way too big for him. But his, uh, his dad agrees to let him have it if he... Oh, you'll know, grow into it. <laughs> and he, if he promises to be a big boy because big boys don't believe in ghosts. And so he keeps the hat. And that night we are uh, presented with one of my favorite scenes of the show just because of how cool it is. Uh, so basically what happens is... That hat belonged to somebody. Yep. And that somebody wants the hat back. So this is a... How it's pictured is it's a super tall man in all black who doesn't walk. He just glides like the four inches off the ground. Yep. You see him come into the room. Luke hides under the bed. You can see it based on the shadow, which is a super cool effect. Just reach down, grab the hat, and put it on. And as he's leaving, Luke, who's been holding his breath this whole time to try and stay silent, lets out a... <gasps> and then the gliding stops. The gliding stops, slowly turns around, reaches down. And, and you can see the shadow there. You can see the shadow reaching down. <sighs> what a good scene. And so this is a... Uh, also uh, puts the groundwork in for a... 
a pretty good moment later in the episode. So this episode, we'll be see Luke going through his struggles entering rehab and then eventually failing out and failing out and then eventually leaving by his own volition in an attempt to help one of his friends who had left. And he was so he's doing well actually. He's about ninety days sober um, towards the end of the episode, and that's going to take us kind of advancing towards episode six mm-hmm. or uh, episode five rather. Um, and yeah, he leaves rehab to help a friend. Like he's he's doing better. Yes. Um, but you can see on this journey, he then has interactions. Like this is a ghost that can continually haunted him. And, yes. And uh, the way it does so is so creepy because it's always facing away from him and if he moves it'll just move closer and there's a one really great shot where it's just tracking luke who's walking towards the camera and the camera's kind of moving backwards and the gliding man is just coming closer and closer and closer but always facing backwards and yeah it's it was something that was always over his shoulder he would look over his shoulder and it'd be there and i took that to kind of be even so this show does a kind of cool thing of playing around with the idea of time itself. Um, it so for this example that I'm trying to talk about, um, I think that this man with the top hat is kind of a metaphor for Luke's addiction. Yes, absolutely. consistently over his shoulder, no matter how far he walks away, it's still right there with him. He can't get away from it. He's always going to be seeing it whenever, wherever he looks. He can't get away from it, but he also has the ability to not let it consume him. And um, I think it, I think it's the idea an addict is always you know minutes away from early relapse. Yes, and uh, I think that's a really cool concept which we will touch on uh, in the next episode. And also, so it's something that um, Theo also you kind of don't aren't really. I like that they're pretty vague about how her touch power works. Yes. Like, it seems like she has a pretty good ability to see into past events, but it also seems like she's got kind of a quasi-ability to see what's potentially going to happen in the future. Like, there was one point in, uh, I think, episode two or three, where she had just, like, grabbed her mom's arm, and she saw her face completely mangled. And at mm-hmm. that point, she had no sort of... Uh, issues like that so there's it's a I like that they don't spell it out completely for you you know there's something there but to the extent of it only Theo really knows yeah very much agreed Uh, anything else you want to add on uh, the twin thing no I mean uh, the only other thing I had was uh, this whole whole time as a kid Luke would talk about his friend Abigail where eventually uh, we learn out we learn that Abigail is real yeah and that's going to become you know we kind of assume she's not real there's there's the other these other ghosts we've mentioned these they're, they're manifest as humans mm. they look like humans and uh we're going to talk about abigail i think around episode uh, eight or nine yes. maybe uh so part two obviously uh she's going to become uh yeah a bit of a tragic uh, tragic occurrence here but i th- i think just the the revelation that she's real the list of things that we've been presented with that we kind of weren't sure on if they were real or not is just about empty pretty much everything we thought maybe existed does exist yeah so yeah that's all that's all i got for episode four and let's now talk about episode five because this one ah it's a doozy it's a long i think it's the longest of the season too i I think cognitive like 75 minutes uh, usually the upper those episodes like 50, 55 minutes. Yes. Um, and this is going to be Nelly centric. It kind of covers a lot of her adult life. Uh, she gets 
early in the episode, I'll just kind of do a quick synopsis here. She eventually gets uh, goes to try to get treatment for her, her um, sleep disorder, which is a bit of a sleep paralysis. And she goes to a sleep technician, and he kind of, you know, they're talking, talking, they have good chemistry, and there's a really cute moment where uh, he asks, oh, do you drink coffee? And she kind of laughs, and she's like, oh, are you asking me out? And he's like, well, no, it's, it's for the sleep survey. And then she immediately is embarrassed, but he's like, but I was going to wait till after the you know appointment to ask you out. So then you see, like, their kind of romance build, and, like, it's, he's a super caring, loving partner for her, and they eventually get married, like we said, you know, Shirley was doing the makeup for Nellie's wedding, and... And, uh, yeah, so you have this great relationship and his super loving partner. You see her have a couple times of uh, sleep paralysis and he has this great system to help her come out of it. Like, he just completely loves her. He doesn't care that he's getting woke up, woken up in the middle of the night. He's just helping her. And uh, I think that makes kind of what happens next so, so tragic is that Nellie's having an episode of, of sleep paralysis. He, you know, they do his normal routine. He's trying to calm her down, calm her breathing, clench, make your you know, clench a fist, and then he goes to turn on the light, which is always how he kind of ends it. As he gets up, he stumbles a little bit, and then Nellie starts, you know, panicking even more. She's breathing hard, and she's kind of moaning, and she sees the bent neck lady uh, in the room. And then as you know, she sees that, her husband collapses, and it, it's revealed later that he had an aneurysm, but Nellie believes it was a bent neck lady. And so, yes. but he, he dies, and, and young. I mean, they had probably been married a year, maybe? I don't even know. And not long. Yeah, a year or two. And, uh, the most tragic thing I think about their relationship is you, know, you mentioned how just sweet and innocent it was, and you could clearly tell how used to being ignored Nellie was. Like she even brings it up in that first meeting with the sleep technician, like, "Oh yeah, I mean my my general practitioner just said uh, avoid TV uh, before avoid bed, avoid TV before bed," and just being listened to is something that she's so unused to be it through her siblings, be it through any medical advice, be it through anybody in general. She has gone through so much from her childhood to adulthood. She knows what she's seeing. She knows what her mom was dealing with. The fact that people are trying to say it's in her head is, it's, it's, you can't even really fathom how you can compartmentalize that and still be like a functioning person. And the thing is, you do get the sense that a lot of the siblings have just decided to forget it, though, because like she she knows what happened, like what happened in Hill House. She knows there was real things, but like her siblings kind of just don't want to hear it anymore. They're like, "All right, Nellie, we've moved on. Like you have to move on." But then she essentially, I think the the the, the thing that really drove her over the edge was then she saw the bent neck lady that she thinks killed her husband. I think that just completely drove her, drove her the edge. I think before that, she, yeah, she was still affected by Hill House, but not to this level. And that's what really, really drove the, the kind of finality of her life where she was seeing psychiatrists about it. Psychiatrists who when were watching her meetings with them, you know, were like, oh, you're being an idiot. Like, you have to listen to her. Like, she's telling the truth. But, you know, as, as a medical professional, you're just like, no, like, you didn't live in a haunted house you you are you taking your meds and she's kind of off and on taking her meds and so there's obviously some issues with that and uh yeah it's just uh, it's tough like she doesn't feel listened to and it's because she hasn't been and i think her siblings really let her down i think at a certain point it became more of a hassle to try to help her than to actually i mean then to so they just didn't care they did like well, right, you know you know we don't i'll talk to you but this is just too much yeah because no you're exactly right they're those siblings put a limit on the mental effort they could put into what they remembered from Hill House. They said, okay, I can only devote so much energy without 
fully admitting to myself that this all did happen. And uh, obviously Nellie and Luke were the only ones who were willing to accept their reality. Mm -hmm. Luke ended up being a drug addict and Nellie just ended up being in terrible shape, terrible shape, being completely alone in the world. And that, that brings us up to a, so basically this episode, it leads us towards uh, taking us back to a scene that we are uh, shown in episode one, mm -hmm. which is um, Nellie returning to Hill House as an adult after so many years away. And we mentioned in episode one, she's like dancing through, you know, like a really kind of eerily slow dancing through the empty, vacant hall, all of the house. Yes. And the cinematography, as she's arriving at the house, it's super foggy. The house is decrepit. Uh, it's very dark. Everything just looks terrible. But then, in Nellie's mind, the way we are shown, she sees her mother again. She sees her siblings as children again. The house looks completely in perfect shape. Like, everything is nice and new and nothing's old. And then the, the kicker there, you know, she then she sees her... Uh, her siblings as adults and, yes. and then she's presented with her dead husband and she's he says like hello gorgeous like i missed you and then they start dancing and they're they she looks so happy she looks so in love like she's missed her husband so bad and so they're slow dancing through the halls together but then you get the reality shot it's it's you know at first you're looking through her eyes and it looks beautiful and then you get the reality shot which is like the same shot from episode one where it's dark and creepy and eerie and you don't and she, she just looks so insane yes it, yes that's it, exactly right uh so the the pinnacle of this episode happens as we are nelly's dancing and eventually her mother she goes with her up the stairs and one thing that nelly had uh, was drawn to early in the season uh, her mother had a locket uh, which had a picture of nelly and a picture of luke so the two twins and nelly said mom i want a locket just like yours and she said, when you're older, I'll give you this one. Yeah. And so as Nellie finally makes herself makes her way up the stairs and she's having this conversation with her mom, her mom puts the locket around her neck and she kind of looks up and her mom has this kind of weird look almost to her face. And then Nellie, uh, Nellie as she was like putting the locket on, she slowly realizes it's not actually a locket. Yeah. And where she is, is she's on the ledge of the balcony, and instead of a locket that she's tied around her neck, she has tied a noose around her neck. Yep. And uh, little by little, we realize the full extent of the situation. I mean, we already know what happened to Nellie. The fact that we already know what's going to happen, to have this dragged out over this long heartbreaking process of the seeing the family seeing the husband and and it's the character who you just you there's no reason you can't love her like she is so innocent she's so kind she has gone through more than anybody in that entire family and just watching that what we what she thought was pure happiness on it in that point when she arrived at the house like she gets like little tidbits from all her siblings like oh we we always believed you, Nellie. We should have listened to you. Like, she gets all this, like, reassurance that she never really got. And so, yeah, at that point, she completely, she feels true bliss. And then the, the counter with that of the noose and alone in the dark. And and then just eventually, I, I don't remember if she's actually pushed or if she, I think she is pushed a bit um, off the edge and then just snap. And then you can see just gray, dark, alone, 
And this is then also the creep. Like, so this the last shot, the last scene, I guess, is her then. She relives this fall. And she falls once. And then you see her like towering over uh, adult Nellie just from a few days ago. And these are instances where we've seen Nellie, who's seen this bent neck lady, essentially, over time. and But now it's replaced by the Nelly who was hanging from the noose with the broken neck and we start to realize oh my god it was it was Nelly the entire time and so she, she keeps falling then she's looking at you know Nelly from a sleep when she's having a, a sleep paralysis then she's looking at Nelly as a child and it ends with her looking at child Nelly who's staring up at to her and Nelly just goes like the the bent neck lady who is adult Nelly just no 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 so we so we find out this fate was unavoidable yep at least the fate we were presented with from episode one everything that nelly saw there was nothing she could have done on at least she could have done somebody else maybe if luke maybe didn't fall into drugs if shirley or if theo or if steven if anybody was there for her maybe that doesn't happen but it all did and holy hell, was that a twist I was not ready for? I didn't see it coming on the first viewing. I honestly didn't. It made sense when I saw it. It made complete sense when I saw it, but I did not see it coming. Absolutely. And it, it, it really... That was an episode where I finished watching and just had to take a break. Like I had to like process and think about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. It's such a well-done moment. And uh, it's one of those things where... You're, you just can't believe that you either A, fell for it, or B, someone was so clever to think of that. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. There. Yeah, when you're rewatching, it's like, it feels obvious, but it, that's that's how it goes. You know, that's the same thing with any kind of big twist like that. And so, believe it or not, we are only halfway through the season. And we could have talked a whole lot more. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we loved that we left out. Like I said, we were trying to cover the things that we really were most compelled by. There was a lot of stuff we didn't touch, a lot of foreshadowing, a lot of imagery, a lot of metaphors. Um, But these were a lot of stuff we loved about these first five episodes. And we will be doing a part two very soon, and we will be, uh, be bringing all together that foreshadowing with the conclusions that are drawn. And uh, all of the, I mean, this show, the, uh, no spoilers, but there's a lot to discuss in the final five episodes. <laughs> well, we've done spoilers already, but yes. yeah, this is a show that builds on itself very well. I think there's a lot of overarching kind of themes and uh, kind of ties throughout the show that's going to be really well addressed in the final part of this episode. And I'm, yeah, super excited to get to it. Uh, hopefully we have time. I mean, we'll have to finish some episodes, but if you if we get another podcast out while you're here, that'd be fun to do together. We might do an intermediate podcast in between. This might be, you know, part two might come two weeks later. Eh, we'll see how it goes, but uh, we're very excited. This is a great show. If you're still listening and haven't watched it, yeah, we spoiled it a lot. <laughs> but honestly, still watch it. It's, a, it's a, such a great, I, for sure, I, 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 don't have, I don't have a great... Uh, you know, great resume in terms of horror TV viewing, mm-hmm. but this is leaps and bounds better than I could ever expect a horror TV show to be. And I think this maybe set a new standard, and I think we could see some fantastic series in the futures that directors are more willing to foray into this. Like maybe season two with a whole new cast, whole new story. Yep. 
uh, just got picked up a couple months ago. So that's exciting. Anthology kind of esque. Yes. And uh, this is even, I mean, he gave the caveat, but even if you listen to this whole episode and haven't seen it yet, you can still enjoy a bunch of this just based on seeing how those family dynamics are portrayed. Absolutely. So we told you how that plays out plot wise, but we can't really do justice to the scenes with Nellie and Luke. And we can't do justice to what how Theo, especially as a child, portrays her emotions. So just watch the show. We it's it's, it's great, especially the first five episodes. Uh, and then we'll tell you how great the, the next five are. Yep, and we're excited to do that. So keep your eyes uh, eyes and ears peeled for episode two coming to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Jumping Scared Podcast. Have any questions, comments, just want to share your horror movie opinions with us? Feel free to reach us at Jumping Scared Podcast on Twitter or by email, jumpingscared at gmail.com. See you next episode.